morning. It's good to be here. It's really sobering to be here. We um, are here to remember Christ and his work, his sacrifice for us. And um, I do have to say that I think the scripture has more to say about somebody um, taking communion unworthily than it does for somebody preaching on communion Sunday unworthily. Um, that was supposed to be humorous. And I don't feel worthy to be here, be up here sharing. I want to take a look at blood atonement. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the coming of the New Covenant, and the commissioning of communion. And that is a very large subject. And any one of you would have been just as capable or more capable to go through Scripture and create a narrative that would be beautiful. So what I'm saying is, is there's probably a lot of other Scriptures that you would have chosen. It's a little bit like we, we would need a long, long, long time, a week, to actually pull the beauty and the data from all the types of shadows and meaning and the realities of Christ and what we have in Him. I can't do that this morning. Um, we just don't have time, and I don't have it pulled together. So, by God's grace, we want to celebrate Jesus and what He has done for us, but there's a... Um, I wanted to share... A, little story. You probably heard this story before, but a man walked into a doctor's office for a checkup, and the doctor was a kind-hearted man. He didn't like to ruffle feathers, but he found the man had, his patient had cancer, and he didn't want to tell the man he had cancer, so he offered him the medication and said, take these pills. They're um, going to be really hard on your stomach. Your hair is going to fall out, and you may die as a side effect of these pills, but take these pills and hopefully your life will be nice. You know, he's going to leave that doctor's office very upset with that doctor. Because it's pretty hard to sell a cure unless you are aware of your malady. And so it is with sin. In our society, we try really hard to avoid the subject of sin. Um, I'm talking about modern Christian society. They want to make a much bigger deal about God's love for us as we are than His love for us and what He paid to then change us and take us out of sin because sin brings death. So we have to recognize that this morning. We are a fallen people. The scripture says all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's blanket guilt. That's not even getting personal. Um, if you would think within for a minute, I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning, but it's your responsibility to make it personal between you and God about your sin before the Lord. And John... 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, 
We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're making God a liar then if we say we have no sin. Adam and Eve were the first to sin and therefore plunging all of humanity into sin after them. We say, that's not fair. Um, why, do, why do I have to suffer the consequences of their choices? Truth be told, I'd have had fruit on my face too if I was there. Um, but God was not willing that any should perish. Therefore, throughout history, God has kept a path, albeit a narrow path, a path for the faithful to be saved. The first sign of blood sacrifice comes when God clothed Adam and Eve in animal skins. I can imagine Adam and Eve watching those carcasses burning and thinking about how their friends, those animals, had to die. Those innocent animals had to die because of their sin. And I'm assuming that they probably were friends with most of the animals in the area. Blood atonement. The Bible is full of it. It is a major theme of Scripture. Because we serve such a perfect and holy God, no one who has sinned can come into His presence. Our sin requires blood atonement. In Leviticus Leviticus talks about blood atonement about 94 times. Um, I would like to read a couple verses from Leviticus 17. talks about this. Verses 10 and 11 of Leviticus 17, 10 and 11. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among the pe- his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for, you, for the soul. Blood sacrifice. The innocent dying in place of the sinful, in place of my sins. Now I'd like to turn to a familiar passage in Exodus chapter 12. This is the passage about the um, Passover. I'd like to look at this a little bit here. Um, Exodus 12, I'll start reading at verse 3 through 13. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for his household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to him take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. 
One thing that stood out to me right here is that it was on the tenth day of the month they were supposed to get this lamb and keep it, I think, basically with the family for four days. And I'm sure there was some level of attachment with this lamb. They knew its purpose. And then they had to slaughter that lamb. And it caused pain to do so. Um, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire, its head, its legs, and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, and sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this story is a beautiful story. It's sad, but it's a story of people acting in faith, doing something strange. They've never done this before. And they did not fully understand. We probably don't fully understand either, but we have a lot more understanding now than they did because of the types and shadows. That perfect lamb, not a bone being broken. Applying the blood. The blood is life. God saved those who, by faith, obeyed. Even Egyptians obeyed. And sacrificed the lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. God created a path for the faithful. For those who walk by faith. So God gave the law through Moses, showing how to deal with sin through regular sacrifices. And I'd like to turn to a passage in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 verse 22, and it says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood... There is no remission. In Hebrews chapter 10, I'll read a few verses here, verses 1 through 7. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and are not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Well, then they would not have, oh, sorry, then 
would they not have ceased to be offered? For worshipers, once purified, would have had no need, no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So it could seem like a contradiction. God says, here's the method. This is what you do with sin. You sacrifice, you shed innocent blood according to the manner that I'm putting forth. And yet, it is shown that it is proven that these sacrifices could not completely remove sin. That's why they had to continue sacrificing. And this brings us to Jesus. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Moses was a type of Christ. Through him came law and judgment and deliverance from the Egyptians. Through Christ came grace and joy. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace came through Jesus Christ. And here's an interesting one for you to consider. The very first plague that God did through Moses in Egypt was turning water to blood. And the very first miracle Jesus did on this earth was turning water to wine. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. Moses showed how to sacrifice lambs for sins. Jesus gave himself as the perfect lamb to be the ultimate sacrifice for sins, the permanent cure. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Jesus replaced the law for love and judgment for joy. So I want to consider the upper room, that upper room experience where Jesus had the Last Supper and served communion. These are two um, worlds colliding. And I, I wonder how what was happening in the spiritual realm because it had to be immense. Here is Christ celebrating the Passover probably for the last time. He was essentially wrapping it up. Now, I know there are Christian Jews that celebrate Passover, and that's great. But Jesus was introducing the new covenant. He fulfilled them that night. What all was happening? And I was pondering for the last few weeks, thinking about communion, about the cup. Because reading through Old Testament, the cup would go with judgment quite often. Um, there's lots of scriptures in the Old Testament, if you look it up, that refer to the cup of judgment, the cup of wrath to be poured out. 
Jesus gives a cup of joy and of hope. So what happened that night? Jesus took the cup of judgment and gave us his cup of joy instead. And that is that is remarkable. Remember Jesus in the garden say, praying, say, Father, if it's possible that this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That was the cup of judgment that Jesus said, I'll take that. And in, in its stead, he gives his cup of righteousness that only belongs to him. So he is sharing it with those who put their faith and trust and believing in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In ancient Israel, a betrothal was a very important event. It was on the same level or equal to marriage. And I'm sure there were varying traditions over the years, but several sources, including a Christian Jewish rabbi, tell of this beautiful version. The fathers would arrange everything, but ultimately the young man would take a cup of wine to the young woman and offer it to her. And he would say to her, I'm willing to share everything with you that I have. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. The wine in this cup represents my life or my very blood because of the level of commitment and sacrifice. If you drink this cup, you belong to me. She was not obligated to drink the cup. She was a free woman. If she would take and drink the cup, she was saying yes to him and entering into a covenant with him. By drinking the cup, she was committing to be faithful until death and give up her individual rights as a single person. If she would commit adultery during betrothal, it would be grounds for being stoned. Meanwhile, the young man would go back home and build an apartment onto his father's house. And when it was ready, he would come, usually in the evening or night, and take his bride to the wedding feast. And during the betrothal period, the young man would abstain from wine. You see the parallels there? That's just beautiful to me. Um, so what practical applications can we take from this? That's, it's beautiful. How does it affect our lives?
I think when we're taking communion, we need to take it with a lot of thoughtfulness. When we drink the cup, we are saying yes to Jesus and giving up our own individual rights or plans or hopes and dreams. We are saying yes to him. You know, I had to think of Mary, who was betrothed to Joseph. She said yes to Joseph, but she had no idea that she would have been drug off to Bethlehem to be taxed and then drug off to Egypt and go through all that she went through. But she said yes to him, and along she went. And that's a little bit of the way it is. When we take communion, we're saying yes to him, and we better mean it. Um... We as well don't know the will of the Father when we say yes to Him. Um, another question I ask myself is, am I or are we really living as though we're anticipating His return? As I think of that bride who drank the cup and the parents are very supportive of this relationship, the excitement would be mounting, I would imagine, as the months go by. And she's more and more just done with her single life. I've seen women do this. And they want the next step. And it's perfectly beautiful and natural. Shouldn't that be the way it is for us as Christians? As we have said yes to the Lord, and we are dead to this world, and we are ready for the next step. Shouldn't that be our attitude and the way we feel about Christ and the temptations of the world? Remember, during this period, she had to be very faithful, as if she was already married. Now, in heaven, I don't think we have a reason or an opportunity to sin or have other loves. But on this earth, we are to live as if we were there, with no other loves and no other distractions. Our heart is supposed to be singular towards Christ as we wait for His return, growing in our love for Him. In closing, I'd like to read two passages. Matthew chapter 26. So the first one. Verse 26 through 30. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you new in the, with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives. John chapter 14, for our last little passage here. 
verses 1 through 6. Jesus speaking, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 